I don't know what it is that brings you the greatest of joy this side of eternity. But I suspect there are many things that are the sources of, it is the fountain of, the place of joy. I also suspect that there is something in particular that we share almost universally regarding joy. It is to be in the presence, the physical, actual presence of those we love. Imagination is ill-suited to provide what only actual presence can offer. Imagination is fine, and we use it, and we think, and we ponder. We, we, we can see the, the, the face of a person. We can imagine the, the holding of a hand. We can imagine the, the warm embrace of those from whom we are separated, but it is ill-suited to provide what actual presence alone can offer. It is a source of joy and and maybe there are few things that provide something greater than the actual physical presence of those from whom we have been separated. Whether it be permanently on this side of eternity or for some temporary separation. In stark contrast to this joy, I know of no greater hurt, no greater pain, no greater feeling of hopelessness than that which comes from the separation that accompanies death. Many here understand, albeit at varying levels, the sickening feeling that settles deep into your soul when the word is delivered to you that a spouse has died or that a parent is gone. Of course, there would be many here that have dealt with the untimely death of a child that reason tells us shouldn't have happened for many years to come. It is the searing pain of loss. This has been a challenging year for many at Campus Church. And while the word unprecedented has been recently overused, it seems appropriate for the unprecedented losses that we have experienced from our own family. The Apostle Peter has loss fresh on his mind. Has recently, it has been his experience to know the despair, the depth of doubt, and the reality of death that has so recently been his experience. He's fresh off from the death, the burial, the denial, the separation of Jesus Christ. It hasn't been that long. I, I know that we have the, the three days in the tomb and Peter is past that, but not by much. He, he already is feeling the weight of guilt because of his denial. Then there has been this Peter, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, I love you. And, and, and then feed my sheep. And three times he denies him. Three times he affirms him. And yet still the reality of that hurt is so close. And then the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
Christ has ascended. And he has told Peter, disciples, wait for the promise. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts. And so there they are. They're gathered in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And then they know beyond mistake, there is no doubt what Jesus had promised has come. The Holy Spirit is given, and now they have power to do the work that God has told them to do, and that they begin. There's no waiting. There is no, like, let's get organized. Let's figure out how we're going to do this. Let's form a committee. They just go and begin to preach the gospel, and preach he does. Now, remember, he is preaching that which is very close to him by way of a timeline. All the realities of the pain of loss, the doubt, the despair, the death of Jesus Christ, these are not some long ago distant memory. They are fresh in his mind. They are the real experiences of his very close history. Today, we are going to look at, for lack of a better title, the first resurrection sermon ever preached. What is it that after they receive power to do the work they are called to do, what is it that the Apostle Peter preaches as his first sermon? He preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To do so today, let's revisit his words and understand what was it that made up this first sermon preached after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and certainly the focus was on the same, a risen Lord. We're going to read a healthy section from Peter's sermon today in Acts chapter 2. So take your copy of the scriptures and join me there, Acts chapter 2. In just a moment, we'll begin reading in verse number 22, Acts chapter 2, verse number 22. Here, the Bible records for us the following, Acts 2, 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Notice these words. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. Now, verse 25 begins what the Apostle Peter uses as his sermon text. So often, as is the case today, I announce my text. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse number 22. Peter does the same. Peter says, okay, we're going to use, he doesn't, in our record, he doesn't record or quote the, the reference because those are new inventions. But he's quoting for us now Psalm chapter 16. Here's his text. Let's look at it in Scripture. Again, here's his text. David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. 
for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance in your presence. And now he goes to preaching, verse number 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, that is the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God hath, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Father, as we look at this passage today, may you open not only your words, but our hearts and our minds to those recorded truths. This we ask. Because of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ, amen. In our text, the Apostle Peter is building a case for Christ to the Jews to whom he is right now at this moment preaching. Now, the last person in the world that a Jew would anticipate could be the promised one, the Messiah, is one who was hanged on a tree. Okay, what does this mean to a Jew, understanding that a person has undergone crucifixion, well, that writes them off immediately. If you're looking for who is possibly the promised one, you're not going to start with anyone who's been crucified. But wait, what about a risen Lord? What about one who is dead and buried and then by many infallible proofs with many eyewitnesses, we ourselves, he says, being witnesses, what about one who is risen from the dead? Can you imagine, the, again, the light bulb moments that are happening for the Jews as they're listening to this sermon preached? He's quoting David. David saying, okay, now, now, now he's not going to permit his holy one to see corruption. Well, Jesus' body, it, it never received corruption. David's tomb... It's still with us. In fact, we could, if we wanted to, do a little field trip, Peter speaking to the people he's preaching to, we could go see David's tomb right now. But Jesus, 
What will we find of him? We'll find an empty tomb, a risen Lord. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ provide according to what the Apostle Peter is preaching? Well, it's going to answer some wonderfully important questions. It's going to give us a joy that is greater than despair. Peter knew the reality of despair. He just experienced it. But now there's something that actually overwhelms the despair, and that is joy unspeakable. It's going to provide a hope that is deeper than doubt. Oh, did he have his doubts? No doubt about it. But Peter also, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, has a hope that now goes deeper than his doubt. And he's going to find a promise that is stronger than death. A promise stronger than death. What grave has yielded up that which it possesses apart from the power of Jesus Christ? And the answer is there is none. And so now Peter's going to know there is a promise that is stronger than even the grave itself. Let's begin today by looking at a joy greater than despair. A joy greater than despair. Before I read this passage again, review Acts chapter 2. I do know that there are those who are listening to my voice at this moment who know the reality of despair. The hurt of separation. The pain of loss. What we celebrate today in a risen Lord means that there is the reality of a joy that actually can supersede the hurt of despair. It doesn't mean that we don't have any. It doesn't mean that that's not a part of our life. It just means that we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. Let's see what he says again. Acts chapter 2, look down at verse number 27. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me, notice these words, full of joy with thy countenance. As we answer the question, what does the resurrection of Christ provide? Let's look at the text from where Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2. This was interesting. Jacob and Lydia quoted this passage when they opened their readings today of resurrection scriptures. Psalm chapter 16, beginning in verse number 10. David writing this psalm. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence. Ah, being with you, fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Have you ever wondered if it's okay to desire happiness? Okay, so let's ask the question. You ask yourself the question. Have you ever wondered, is it okay for me to, to desire to be happy? Is it okay for me to want something of, of pleasure? Is it okay for me to pursue joy? You know, sometimes as Christians, we, we step back from that question and it's like, well, there's something more important than, than, than happiness. There's something that's, that's of greater import right now than our joy. We talk about holiness, and holiness is more important than happiness. And, and all of that is true. But let's go back to our original question. Is it okay for you to pursue happiness? 
Is it okay for you to desire joy? And then actually take steps to achieve it, to have it. I suppose if that is our only pursuit and we're willing to do anything to get it, we are in a dangerous place. But if we understand that there is a place of joy, dare we even use the word happiness, that God intends for us to pursue, we can start to understand an important part of the whole Christian life, joy unspeakable. The reality of fullness of joy and happiness beyond measure is, I believe, one of the chief motivating factors that moved Jesus beyond the depths of despair, and it is what made the bitter cup drinkable. Jesus has this before him that is clearly detestable, a bitter cup for him to drink. Why does Jesus pick up the cup, the dredge of becoming sin for us? The reality of the separation, the turning of the Father away from the Son. Why would he do any of this? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us exactly why. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, but now set down at the right hand of the Father. The Apostle Paul understood this principle in Romans 8.18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Future joy, future glory. And you know, I do believe that even in this life, God allows us to taste and see. To have little samplings of that glory, little tastes of that joy, an experience of the happiness that is yet to come. This is why we can glory in something as detestable as the cross. Have you ever thought about what we sing regarding our our words of praise in our Christian circles? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem, now think about these words, the emblem of suffering and shame. He goes on, and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Why would we cherish the emblem of suffering and shame if it were not for what the cross actually provides? We don't stop at the cross We know that for our sin, Christ Jesus died. But we also know that not only did he die and was buried, we know that he rose again. He became the first fruits of all who follow after him. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and 20. So many of these passages of scripture have already been quoted for us this morning. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? The loss is overcome by the gain. The despair becomes overwhelmed by the joy. What do you think the disciples found to be of deeper meaning? The despair of the crucifixion or the joy of the resurrection? Without a doubt, it is the joy of the resurrection. And what is it about the resurrection that brought joy? 
First and foremost, it was to be again in the presence of the one they loved. The understanding of what the crucifixion meant in light of the resurrection. It's found in the words of Jesus when he said, Because I live, ye shall live also. Immediately following Christ's death, the disciples are bewildered. They are broken men with their dreams gone, their lives shattered. But what do they become after the resurrection? They become something more than they were prior to his death. They were not simply returned to their prior state. They don't breathe a sigh of relief saying, ah, now everything's back to normal. No, they are transformed by his resurrection. They were changed from hopeless men into men pulsating with confidence, from cowardly victims to courageous victors. They are now living in resurrection power. It does not mean that they would no longer experience sorrow, even at times despair. But it does mean that their joy continually exceeds their sorrow. Let's use a more modern day, although this would be an antiquity for us, but let's use a more modern day example of the reality of the resurrection. At age 32, a man named John G. Patton accepted the call to missionary service in the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. In March 1858, he married Mary Ann Robson, and on April 16th, they sailed together for the cannibal island of Tana. In less than a year, they built a little home and Mary had given birth to a son. But on March 3rd, 1859, one year after their marriage, Mary died of the fever. Three weeks after her loss, John buried their infant son who also died. John Patton buried them alone and he wrote that the place of their burial would become for him in future months and years, quote, a sacred and much frequented shrine to him who had been left to carry on the work alone. And speaking of that burial spot, Patton wrote, whensoever Tana turns to the Lord, because at that point he had seen no fruit in the harvest field, whensoever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, Men in after days will find the memory of that spot, the burial spot, still green, where with ceaseless prayers and tears, I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. But for Jesus, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. Why continue then? If the despair is so great, why not pursue something that will provide relief, comfort, even some immediate, albeit temporary, form of happiness? What could motivate someone to go on? Is it duty alone? Is it fear? Could it be for the sake of reputation? These all seem to fall far short of what is necessary to carry someone along through the dark and heavy times of life. What is it then that would cause someone like John Patton to continue through the despair and pain of loss? I submit to you, it is fullness of joy. The same joy that was set before Jesus, the same joy that the disciples experienced at his resurrection, the joy available to you and to me today, joy that is greater than despair. Where does that take us to? to a hope 
that is deeper than doubt. A hope that runs deeper than even my deepest doubts. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 25 and 26. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Again, the apostle Peter's quoting David from Psalm chapter 16. And there again, David says, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. David is saying this. I think David is saying, okay, I know what's going to happen to Christ, the Messiah, and because of what's going to happen to him, I also know what's going to happen to me. He's saying, go ahead and put my body in the ground because it's not going to stay there. The word hell in Psalm 1610, it's often translated as the grave. It does mean the place of no return. He said, okay, go ahead and put me in the ground. But even the place that says, I will not lose my grip on you, it has no power over the one who is over the grave. So David is saying, the holy one is going to be resurrected. I'm going to follow. The one who will not see corruption of the grave? Can you imagine how the Jews must have been thinking, I get what David was saying, connecting it to the risen Lord. What was it that established David's hope that was deeper than any doubt? David knew that what would yet happen to Christ would also happen to him. And he would, again, be in the literal presence of his Redeemer. It was God's presence always before his face, the knowledge that he would never be moved that was his hope, his earnest expectation. David concluded that it was this hope that would bring his heart rejoicing, put praise into his mouth. No matter what would happen to his flesh, his hope was in the Lord. We sing that wonderful song as well. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me, paid the price of all my sin at Calvary, for me, he died, for me, he lives, and everlasting life and light he freely gives. Now, listen to how David explains, listen to how Peter explains David's hope. Look again down at verse number 29, Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, David's hope was in the same person that yours is in, that mine is in today, in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Regardless of what happens to this body, our hope says that because he died and rose again, so shall we rise also. Again, consider missionary John Patton. Prior to Patton's leaving for the New Hebrides Islands, a man named Mr. Dixon exploded Patton is trying to explain his call and his burden to the New Hebrides. 
Mr. Dixon was not having it. Here's what he said. Dixon shouts out, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. What he's saying is recalling the memory of two young men who had gone but 19 years prior and they had only set foot on the islands when their lives were taken and their physical, literal bodies consumed. Notice how Patton responds. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying there is a hope that is deeper than the doubts we may have. Listen, Mr. Dixon, you and I are both going to die. Our bodies will be laid in the ground. What happens to them there is not the end of the story. I know that my Redeemer lives, and therefore I too shall live. There is a joy greater than despair, a hope deeper than doubt, And let's wrap this up by looking at a promise stronger than death. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. Him being delivered, that is Jesus, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. And I love these words. Because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And then look at verse number 28. Thou hast made me to know the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Jesus knew beyond the death of the cross lay the promise of the Father's presence. And there was to be found fullness of joy. I asked at the very beginning of this message, what is it that brings you the greatest joy? It's not the imagination of someone's presence. It is the reality of their presence that provides fullness of joy. This is what we understand was Jesus's future joy. I know I I despise the bitter cup, But oh, I look beyond the bitterness that I will endure to future joy. It is this very promise that we're holding on to today. The promise is this. The pathway to fullness of joy in the presence of the Father is found only through the person of Jesus Christ. The one who accomplished, who provided who offers that which you and I can never ourselves achieve. Christ and Christ alone is our means to future joy. John Patton was not afraid of death because the promise of God remains stronger than the threat or the fear of death. On numerous occasions, Patton prayed this. He writes it in his autobiography. He said, I prayed, protect me. Or take me home to glory as you see to be best. 
After one harrowing journey, he wrote, had it not been for the assurance that in every path of duty, he would carry me through or dispose of me therein for his glory, I could never have undertaken either journey. One of the most powerful paragraphs in Patton's autobiography describes his experience of hiding in a tree at the mercy of an unreliable chief as, hung, as hundreds of angry natives hunted him for his life. Listen to what he wrote. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets, the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? What is the promise that is stronger than death? It is the record that Dr. Zacharias mentioned earlier in our service today. It's the promise that is offered in the most readily understood manner possible. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and this life is in his Son. For whom? For all that believe on the name of the Son of God. Jesus said, because I live, ye shall live also. May I ask you today, those who are assembled in this auditorium, those who may be watching us at this very moment, what is your record that will be presented before Almighty God in the day when men's works are tried? This is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. There are two records that will be presented one day before God. One is the perfect record of Jesus Christ the spotless lamb of God, the one who died your death, taking your sin so that he could make your record his. He took your record upon him on the tree 
And he offers you his record standing before a holy God. I was 17 years old when I knew my record would forever damn me to a Christless eternity, to a real place called hell. I knew that I couldn't work enough to satisfy God because works are, are, are woefully insufficient. If my works are tried, the record would need to be perfect, and mine is far from that. So at 17, I also realized that Jesus' record was spotless, perfect. He was sinless, the spotless lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And so I simply came before God and said, God, I accept Jesus as my record, him as my sacrifice, his life in exchange for my own. I believe in Jesus Christ. When did that happen to you? At that moment, I passed from death into life. And because Jesus is eternally resurrected, although the least important part of me, my body, one day may die, the most important part of me, the real me, the one who inhabits this body and was made alive by Jesus Christ will be absent from this body and present with my Lord. And someday, when Jesus comes to call his own, my body will rise again new, never to die again. What's your testimony today? What is the reality of your future do you have today a joy because of Jesus Christ that's greater than despair? Do you have a hope that is deeper than your doubts? And do you have a promise that is stronger than death? Because I live, ye shall live also. It has been, in fact, quite a year for Campus Church regarding loss, hurt, grieving, separation, the shock of untimely death. What do we have today because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We have joy. We have hope. We have his promise. Do you personally have that this morning? If not, the key that unlocks it all is the eternal life offered exclusively through the resurrected Jesus, the Christ, whom we celebrate today. Believer, if you are not in Christ, today you are invited to come to the one who died so that you might live, and he lives, ever making intercession for his own.